Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, hello. <laughs> I'm, I'm making an effort to sound more cheerful, but I probably actually am. It's a gloomy day outside and the country's falling apart or holding together. Maybe a little bit of both. Uh, anyway, we have the, the theme today, excluding me, is strong women. Uh, because uh, our producer, our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, a strong woman, is producing this show. And we have two very strong women as guests, Dahlia Lithwick uh, and Margaret Sullivan. Margaret will be on in the second half. They're both regular appearers on this show, luckily for us. Uh, Margaret, as you may remember, is media columnist for The Washington Post. She's going to focus on Voice of America, probably an institution you don't think about very much because... It's actually not really made for you all that much. Um, But uh, there are ways in which it is being uh, compromised uh, and uh, diverted from its mission in manners that will probably not surprise you. We're going to begin, though, with Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus uh, and does much, much more than that besides. Uh, And she joins us right now. Hi, Dahlia. Hello. I'm I'm trying to kind of copy your feigned I enthusiasm. I know. It doesn't really sound plausible from either one of us, but um, nope. Nope. <laughs> uh, but we're trying. So let's, <laughs> let, let's start with the news. I mean, electors, presidential electors from the so-called Electoral College, they're meeting right now. Uh, in fact, I think the New York Times has like a tracking thing to tell you. I think last time I looked, Biden had 149 of his purported or uh, apportioned 306 uh, electoral votes. But so they're actually doing the thing right now, right? This is the thing that electors do that makes the election final, correct? Uh, This is. uh, It's one of the many sort of demarcation points in this transition period that probably none of us other than maybe during Bush v. Gore paid any attention to, which have now become an opportunity to write yet another headline that says Biden has won again. So yes, this is happening and um, it would be a total invisible nullity given uh, Biden's margins of victory. And, and yet, as you say, because nothing is for sure anymore, we are watching it and hoping that it has some kind of conclusion, some full stop, period, now it's really over effect. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, would for the we will long for the days of invisible nullities. Uh, we do already. And, and like so many other developments in this particular cycle, this one is attended by at least the plausible threat of violence. Uh, Michigan has had to close its legislative buildings due to credible threats of violence, to use the term of officials there. I think Arizona has had to go to some kind of DEFCON status. I'm not quite sure what, what they've had to do. But it seems, Dahlia, that at every, at every turn here. It isn't simply um, hectoring in the courts. Uh, it, it isn't simply political maneuvering. There's, you know, there's a sword and spear point to all this that never seems to go away. 
I think that's right. And I think that's the part that's hard to track, right? I mean, I, I'm a legal reporter first and foremost. I can monitor the Kraken, you know, which I've been doing for weeks, you know, the the 50-some the lawsuits that all have uh, failed uh, for, for Trump and Giuliani and Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell and what have you. But, but what you're describing is something far outside the lane of sort of normal politics or law. And it is this, I think you're right, hovering threat um, to often, you know, low level election officials in Georgia, in Michigan, uh, people who, again, were invisible nullities in some sense. They just doing their jobs. And suddenly Jocelyn Benson, you know, uh, 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 the secretary of state uh, in Michigan is trying to decorate for Christmas. And there's like an armed mob outside her door. So I think what you're identifying, Colin, is exactly the thing that we don't quite have a name for, which is this feels like some version of birtherism of, you know, Sharpie gate of longstanding denialism that is now feels like it's bubbling into threats of actual violence. Yeah. I mean, there's a way in which this, this whole electoral crisis almost seems like a gateway drug to militiaism for some people. You know, I mean, it seems like the, the presence of that movement, which you could at one point really kind of chase into a few dark corners here and there, uh, it, it just grows. It swells. There are a number more people who are willing at least to join in, you know, making threats and making trouble. But I, I want to go back to your wheelhouse uh, because there's a lot of stuff uh, in there that we need to talk about, too. So on Friday, the Supreme Court turned down the so-called Texas lawsuit, which Trump had referred to as the big one. Uh, maybe, first of all, explain what it was that the Supreme Court did or more accurately refused to do. Yeah, this was uh, 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 <laughs> in my wheelhouse. I think the the word we use is bonkers, uh, but this was a <laughs> full on bonkers challenge that was brought by the state of Texas. Eventually, a whole bunch of other uh, state uh, attorneys general signed on, as does the Trump administration, and essentially they bring um, a, a case uh, directly to the Supreme Court under this jurisdictional theory that essentially says, usually if a state sues another state, this is incredibly rare, but over water rights or land rights, so there's a direct suit from one state to another that can go directly to the Supreme Court, leapfrogging the other courts. It, it, it is very rarely invoked, but the point of it was this was Texas suing the states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and claiming that those states had so badly uh, mishandled their own elections that all of the millions of votes needed to be thrown out and the state legislature should be allowed to send up uh, their own electors. So it was electors, sorry. So it was essentially saying we're asking to this, the Supreme Court to set aside state election results in these four states because of sort of inchoate 
claims of fraud and mismanagement. And the Supreme Court, as you said, just bounced it away, theoretically for a lack of standing, saying, Texas, you have no standing to sue the other states because of the way they administer elections. But also, I think just because Trump had said, this is the one, this is the bank shot, this is the huge thing that's going to get us before my three justices, it also in a big symbolic way uh, shut down you know, there's still a lot of election challenges happening. You know, we're seeing them in Wisconsin. We're seeing them in Michigan. But it did shut down the idea that Trump could just run to the Supreme Court and without having a credible vehicle, just get the court to nullify the election. Right. We should mention that, as I understand it anyway, uh, uh, there were two justices who were not completely indisposed towards this. Alito kind of said that he was interested in one kind of purely procedural aspect of this, but was not prepared to grant Texas any other kind of relief. And God knows what Thomas was thinking, but he apparently wasn't thinking that we couldn't possibly hear this this case. That, that, that's right. I mean, essentially, it goes back to that jurisdictional argument that both Alito and Thomas said, look, we don't have the right to, or the discretion as a court to, to deny the filing of this kind of complaint from one state to another. In other words, we have to at least let them present it and we have to hear it. But then they went further and essentially said, even if they would have allowed the filing of Texas's complaint, they were not going to grant the relief that Texas was seeking. And so I think it was a procedural fight about whether the court had a mandatory obligation to hear it, but not, there was no vote and certainly none of Trump's so-called Trump's own justices uh, showed any interest in deciding this suit on the merits. Yes, I, I thought uh, in uh, one of the replying states, Pennsylvania, their attorney general summed it up well. His name is Josh Shapiro. He says, Texas invites this court to overthrow the votes of the American people and choose the next president of the United States in what would be a seditious abuse of the judicial process. You can't say it better than that. But, you know, Dahlia, you say bonkers and I say bonkers or perhaps I say tomato, but um, 17 states 17 states that Trump won, and therefore giving them less standing to complain, but 17 states that Trump won signed on uh, to uh, to coin a phrase, an amicus curiae brief. Uh, where have I heard that term before? Um, urging the court to take the Texas case. Um, this, it's bonkers, but you can get 17 attorneys general to join in at least, you know, part of the action. And 126 members of Congress, yes. I right? I mean, that. it's almost beyond contemplating. You know, people are throwing the word sedition around. But it really does feel like the willingness of, right, this is not about Sidney Powell anymore. This is not Rudy Giuliani, you know, sweating, you know, brown stuff into his ear. This is, as you're saying, the actual machinery of law and of government signing on with a lawsuit that has, I mean, as we've now agreed, I think no jurisdictional merit, no merit, you know, on the actual material complaint. And to think that you have senior ranking, you know, Republican uh, elected officials in terms of the state AGs, um, members of uh, the House, all saying, 
we're going to go along with this winking fiction that this is a legitimate lawsuit and it deserves to be filed. I mean, it doesn't go without saying that people are sanctioned for filing lawsuits. Lawyers every day are sanctioned for filing this kind of frivolous litigation. And so you have people who are putting their sort of imprimatur as serious, you know, legal actors and constitutional actors and political actors behind a lawsuit that by a nine to zero margin, the court kicked to the curb. You're right. I mean, it's, it's not a question of whether I think it's bonkers or you think it's bonkers. There's no there there. And the fact that the, the utter willingness of, you know, weeks after it's time to say, look, you know, you may not like the result, but it's done. Uh, there's no evidence of fraud. You've lost 50 cases and more trying to allege it. The fact that instead of this diminishing, it's actually ramping up, that is profoundly destabilizing. Yeah, and, and there's so much more to say about this, but um, we should just say also, um, you know, or at least emphasize that in this case, as has, has been the case with so many filings on behalf uh, of Trump, there's it's not that there are sort of spurious allegations. There almost aren't any allegations of fraud or there's an allegation of fraud with absolutely no instances to cite. Uh, I can't remember which filing it was, but I think it might be this one in which it was argued that because Trump had won Ohio and Florida, and the person who wins Ohio and Florida always wins the presidency, parentheses, not true in the case of Nixon, um, that, that that proves that there was fraud. I mean, it's like the Steve Kordacki argument or something. They don't they don't they couldn't really point to anyone committing fraud. It just kind of seemed like this didn't come out right. Right. I mean, I, I think for all that it, it feels like we're in a blender of bad arguments, it is worth I think clocking uh, the Wisconsin Federal District Court opinion on Saturday in another one of these complete Hail Mary crazy town lawsuits only because he did the thing that a lot of courts haven't done. He did. He handed down a 23 page decision and order and and actually looked at the merits of the claims, like really said, okay, let's pretend this is a legit lawsuit. I'm going to look at the stipulated facts and I'm going to drill down on the claims. And man, was it a beat down. Like it was, you know, so few of the courts actually need to get to the the, the nuts and bolts because they can, there's no basis to file these suits. And so they get kicked away quickly, but he really looked at it and, absolutely shredded uh, the Trump arguments. And I think it goes to your larger point, Colin, which is, dude, you can always file a lawsuit. Donald Trump has for decades and his father before him, ably assisted by Roy Cohn, learned the lesson that if you have the money, you can always file the next lawsuit. You can do it. It doesn't matter what the claim is because you're going to exhaust people. You're going to run them out of money. You're going to intimidate them and chill them. And eventually you can win a couple of them. And even if you lose, you pretend you win. That playbook from his years in business and real estate is exactly this playbook. It's just been scaled up to ludicrous levels. Thankfully, the courts are like, dude, this has been scaled up to ludicrous levels, but it doesn't change the fact 
there's just no merit in any of these doesn't seem to stop him from going on. Oh, why drag Ludacris into this? He's just trying to have his rap career. All right, <laughs> we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with more of Dahlia Lithwick and, and maybe how to fix some of these problems after this. All right, we're back with Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about courts and the law for Slate, hosts the terrific podcast Amicus, although not to whine, but I don't think there was a December 12th episode this week. Um, so, uh, and I missed it. Um, so, um, I guess, yeah, let's let's talk first of all about the notion of the national popular, popular vote. This has been around for a really long time. We've had advocates uh, of this idea on our show, I don't know, I mean, like eight, 10 years back, I feel like, uh, but it has a kind of fresh currency right now. Explain what is being proposed. Uh, I think what is being proposed is one of several ways to do away with um, sort of minority rule trends that are happening in, in almost every single lane that you look at. And so I think the idea generally is, you know, if you're dissatisfied with the Electoral College, if you're dissatisfied with a Senate that, you know, because there are two senators from every state represents, you know, California has the same number of uh, senators as Montana. I think if you're looking down the barrel of, you know, the gerrymandering that is about to come about in the coming year and the ways in which we now have, and I know you and I have talked about this before, but we now have a minority majority president, right, who's elected because of the electoral college, because of the ways that voting is distorted by vote suppression and gerrymandering. So we have a minority majority president appointing minority majority Supreme Court justices that are then confirmed by minority majority senators and those Supreme Court justices are putting into effect yet more gerrymandering, yet more vote suppression, and yet more minority-majority rules. And so I think it's just one of several big, big, big fixes that we have to do, some of which you know, will involve constitutional change, some of which won't. But I think that the just general idea is that for the first time, Americans looking around and saying every one of the trend lines that has reified minority rule in America now has to be structurally reverse engineered so that we can go back to systems of one person, one vote. So, so uh, just yeah, to emphasize again for people who don't know, you know, there are a lot of different proposals. This the National Popular Vote Initiative basically says that if you, state by state, if you get each state to agree to award their electoral votes uh, to the winner of the popular vote, as soon as you get to two hundred and seventy votes, you have the ability to, in fact, base the the choosing of the president on uh, the popular vote. It's so, a compact, right? It's yeah, just it's a, a, it's a, an agreement that allows you to do it without formal structures. Yeah, you don't have to change the Constitution, all, anything mm -hmm. like that. So, 
you know, let me let me offer an argument against that. Even though I would be thrilled to see it in place, let me offer just a discussion uh, argument against it, and that would be that what we're seeing today, we we have this system under the most ferocious blast furnace flamethrower challenge that it's been through in my lifetime, Bush v. Gore included, and it's holding because there's a settled understanding of how it has to go. By the end of today, I don't think we're going to see faithless electors. I don't think we're going to get too many surprises. I think Biden's going to wind up with 306 electoral votes or damn close. You know, so maybe the argument is we actually do have a way of doing it, which a lot of people believe in. Um, would it be risky to disturb that? So first I would command, I think the best book on this is Jesse Wegman's uh, uh, book about the Electoral College that kind of presciently came out last year. Um, here's my concern about what you're saying. I, I, I think that it is of a piece, Colin, with this big theme that is saying the system worked right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is saying the, the, the processes as, as crumbly and, you know, clunky as they are, everything held. And, and because we need to lash ourselves to something, I think this is your argument. Let's lash ourselves to system that, you know, has 200 years history and that people believe in. And, and I think that my problem is I now dispute the premise. I don't think any of these systems really held. I think they held because this was a stupid coup, which is my trademark. You know, hmm. this was not a well-executed, deftly run, you know, this was not Ben Ginsburg, you know, arguing for the RNC. This was uh, Sidney Powell screaming about the Kraken. So I, my fear is that if we walk away from this election, and by the way, I still think like they're, they're you know, as you and I are talking, Michigan is doing an alternate state of electors, right? So I'm not as convinced as you are. That <laughs> well, no, I'm actually not convinced. This is more for the sake of argument. Um, okay, so then, so then stipulated that this may persist until January 20th. I guess I am really worried about calling out the signal that this architecture held, therefore the architecture is strong or reliable. I think that what we've learned, if nothing else in the last four years, and this is why I'm obsessed about the minority rule piece of this, is that anything that happens that is distorting the vote can be weaponized to further distort the vote. And I guess my final thought on this is, I think it's really easy to say the election system held because it works and it was basically a blowout. But I think we're now going to see not just because of gerrymandering and more vote suppression, but I think that even looking at the election law that is now being produced in the wake of this election, we are going to see more calls for, for ID. We're going to see more calls for doing away with mail-in voting, it is going to be harder and harder and harder for people to vote, and that is being blessed in the courts. So I just feel like we have to absolutely ring the bell in the opposite direction, which is this is a pretty shabby system that we eked out <laughs> what looks like it may be a win, but saying that that means that the system is inherently strong or should be preserved I think is the wrong lesson. I think the right lesson is everything we've learned is that fragile systems in the hands of illiberal actors are going to be more fragile. And I think we have to do everything we can to really restore the basic notion of one person, one vote and majority rule. 
Okay, in the time we have left, I've kind of got one more question. I mean, given the fractiousness of all this, given the fact that, yes, as you said, 126 representatives, uh, Republican representatives expressed support for this completely baseless Texas lawsuit, and they were not, you know, this is not crazy QAnon people entirely. This is Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. This is Elise Stefanik from New York, who at least plays a moderate Republican on television. Um, it, given the divisiveness and the kind of just irreconcilable visions of reality, if I told you that, Dahlia, that I firmly believe that in by the end of 2022, two years from now, there will be a significant and not to be trifled with secessionist movement in this country, uh, a movement possibly led by Texas uh, to, to just move away. Would you try to talk me out of that point of view? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not sure I would. I, I, I'm not sure that the language of healing that we're hearing from Biden, right, which is, by the way, going to be used to not do investigations and not hold to account some of the lawlessness around, you know, family separations and building the wall in defiance of Congress. All of this quote unquote healing, as it I look at it now, and I'm sorry if this sounds cynical, appears to be capitulation <laughs> to the Kraken, right? Capitulation mm. to really, really dangerous ideas. So, I mean, maybe this goes back to the lawsuits themselves. There are not two legitimate sides in a lot of this. Some of this is crazy QAnon denialism. And so I think that in order to have a more perfect union and work our way back to each other, there needs to just be shared ideas of what is true. And, and I worry, I really worry that that train has left the station, Colin. All right. Well, we should probably stop there uh, and we'll just continue to have conversations leading up to the moment of, of secession, if that ever comes. Oh, Hopefully we can figure things out. Uh, I just want to say one thing just to clarify for our listeners who may be scratching their heads uh, because Dahlia has used the term Kraken three or four times. So uh, it's actually from... I think the remake of Clash of the Titans, I think uh, Liam Neeson says it at first, but Sidney Powell, one of the lawyers uh, for Michael Flynn and then for uh, Donald Trump's legal team, uh, had co-opted this idea of release the Kraken. The Kraken is like a big, giant squid type uh, monster. Uh, so I just, so in case they're wondering, is she saying crackhead? What is she saying? Um, <laughs> in in, in Lawland, Colin, Kraken is the new constitution. It's right. the word we use more than right. any other. Crack, Kraken is the new Marbury versus Madison. Uh, <laughs> all right, Dahlia Lithwick, it's so great to talk to you and everybody should be listening to Amicus. Great podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. Some nice people are going to come on right now, and they are going to ask you to pledge to the station. And if you do it now and you say nice things, it's good for us. I sound like Trump. <laughs> you, you should be nice to us. You should say nice things. <laughs> but, but you actually should. So nice people are coming on, and please listen to them. You can make a pledge by calling 1-800-584-2788 or going online to wnpr.org. I'm Patrick Scahill here with Harriet Jones, listening to the Colin McEnroe Show with you. Hopefully you are enjoying it. Uh, this is a program uh, that I, I obviously love. I have a special connection to it as uh, the first producer for the program. Uh, so my opinion is, is, I suppose, a little biased, um, but I really do believe that Colin and his team are bringing you um, great news, great information uh, every single day here uh, during the week. 
Uh, and they can do that because of you, because of your support. So if you love Colin, if you love his team, if you love all the great stuff they do every day, please support it. Here's how. 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. Yeah, if you're a neuro listener, you might not know that, but uh, the, the Colin McEnroe show was the brainchild of not only Colin McEnroe, but also... <laughs> Mostly Colin. <laughs> <laughs> He's guilty too. <laughs> but yeah, um, Patrick was part of the original production team of that show. And it really has taken shape as something very unique on the, the media landscape. There's nothing else like it. Um, and it's so eclectic and so diverse. You never quite know what you're going to um, learn about. One of the things I actually really miss about not being in the newsroom these days. You know, we're all on Zoom, we're all remote, which for which we're very grateful. We're very grateful our company has allowed us to do that. And we've been able to keep things going seamlessly for, for the listeners too. But one of the things I really miss is not being able to eavesdrop on production meetings for the common It's always just kind of mind-bending <laughs> when you hear Josh and Betsy and uh, Colin and his producers you know, tossing around really wild ideas and saying, well, how can we put this on the radio? You know, this completely off-the-wall topic that no one else would think, well, you can make an audio show from that. They'll do it. They'll take it on. They'll say, yep, okay, how are we going to do this? And it's just, it's a very, very creative process. Um, and hopefully that's something that, you know, you listen to, that you recognize the work and the creativity that goes into that and something that you can support. And as Patrick says, you can give us a call now to support it. If you do call during the Colin McInerney show, we're, we're aware of when you call, you know, and, and sort of Colin and his team kind of get the credit for that, if you like. So it's important to call now, 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788. You can leave a comment for them, good, bad, or indifferent. You can uh, give us some feedback on, on what you think, um, or you can go online to wnpr.org and do the same. Again, 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org to make uh, that pledge. And, uh, you know, I, I really do believe that, um, you know, Colin and his team are uh, are doing something different, which is which is kind of neat, um, uh, doing something different, doing something unique. Uh, and I think that's what we strive to do here at Connecticut Public. We're not trying to repackage uh, stories that you're hearing elsewhere and just kind of um, you know, follow the follow the herd on certain things. We're trying to break off and and give you know new, unique, and important takes on on subjects. Um, and we're also trying to elevate the voices of uh, people who um, might not typically find their way uh, into uh, media outlets, might not typically find their way to a radio station. We're trying to elevate those voices. We're trying to reach uh, more of those people. And uh, we can do that work uh, with your pledge of support. So please do call now, make that pledge, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788, or wnpr.org. You know, I do think that the Colin McInerney Show is kind of an example of one of the sorts of things that might not even get made in a different model. You know, a lot of traditional media is um, supported by ad commercial advertisers. And I can't really imagine the pitch meeting to a commercial advertiser where you go in and you try and sell this show where no one quite knows what's going to happen on any particular given day. And, you, you know, the topics can range from incredibly serious to incredibly silly. It's just, it's something that really only lends itself to the public radio model where we're putting this out there to you and we're just trusting you as listeners that you're going to, you know, hear this and appreciate it, and you do. I mean, people just like you have stepped up to support this show in the past. I think Colin McEnroe, I think you, the, the Colin McEnroe show has passed its 10-year anniversary also, right, as well as... Yeah, 
Colin's been on the air for more than 10 years, supported by people like you who believe in this kind of crazy model where we just trust that you're going to call in and help support us. So we would really appreciate if you can, you know, um, repay that trust and give us a call now. 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788 or online at wnpr.org. And thank you so much of your support for Colin and for Connecticut Public Radio. That was actually really fun listening to the pledge break. I usually, well, sometimes I can't hear it, right? Sometimes I just, like if we're in the studio, if we're in the building, I can't hear the audio. And usually anyway, I'm running around trying to cover up some massive preparation liability before I come back to use that five minutes to my own. But I listened to it. it was really, they were really great. Patrick Scale is like the Alexander Hamilton of the Colin McEnroe show. Uh, I wish I could wrap that more effectively. And I, I also think Harriet's right that a show like ours probably wouldn't get done in a lot of other markets. In fact, if anybody responsible was paying any attention, our show like ours probably wouldn't get greenlighted. Uh, when I first came here, uh, there's this wonderful, very sweet, very nice guy named Kim Gren, who was one of the people running the station. And I went to a meeting with him before I was hired, or around the time I was hired. And he, he had this huge book of public radio standards and practices and best practices. And he kind of shoved it towards me on the table and said, you're going to want to be reading this. And I very gently shoved it back at him. I said, eh, I don't think so. I don't think I want to know what the best practices are. And that's worked the whole time. All right. So very quickly, got to thank, uh, speaking of wonderful teams and, and founding fathers and mothers. Uh, got to thank Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. She produced this episode. The amazing Cat Pastor, a recent acquisition. And boy, were we lucky to get her right at the time we got her. Cat Pastor's in the studio, making it possible for this whole thing to work in its completely bonkers, decentralized form that we have right now. So uh, thanks to them, too. And thanks to you if you'll uh, make a pledge uh, during this time. You can even do it while I'm talking. I won't be offended. However, Margaret Sullivan probably wants you to pay attention to what she's saying, uh, not call up and uh, pledge money to us. You can give online very quietly. Margaret won't hear. Margaret Sullivan is a media columnist for The Washington Post, uh, the media columnist for The Washington Post, and the author of Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. She's been on our show many times. It never gets less exciting to introduce her. Margaret, welcome to our airwaves. Thank you, Colin. Great to be with you again and with your listeners. Thank you. So we're going to talk about Voice of America today. Now, this is actually an institution that most Americans don't know very much about because they don't come in contact with them. It's kind of not for them for the most part. So maybe just set this up by reminding people what it is and what it does. Right. So Voice of America is part of a larger federal agency that broadcasts news um, American news and news about different places in the world and they do it worldwide and they do it in 40 different languages so people who are in you know almost every part of the world can hear voice of America and sort of hear American style journalism and a lot about what's happening in the United States um, through this organization that is funded by the federal government but has a lot of um, sort of, you know, guardrails in place uh, so that the government isn't, you know, the one sort of telling the news. Um, and it was set up in response to Nazi propaganda. It was sort of an effort to say, okay, well, here's America, and this is what we stand for, and here's democracy, and this is how we do journalism. 
So, yeah. So the point of it is, you know, particularly in the areas where the media, the journalism is kind of state controlled or otherwise controlled, to have something that isn't controlled is not controlled. However, if it simply becomes an arm of uh, of American governmental messaging, then that kind of defeats the purpose. It just becomes a uh, another kind of thing that people don't know whether they can trust. That's why the firewalls are there. So that exactly. the whole thing makes some kind of sense. So what's happening to those firewalls, Margaret? Well, you know, unsurprisingly, President Trump never saw a media organization that he didn't want to take over and use for his own purposes. In most cases, he's not able to do that, although he certainly has been able to with Fox News to some extent. But, um, you know, sometime well into his term, it sort of occurred to him that, wow, I've got this uh, global news organization that I can bend to my will if I if I so desire. And he he put in as the CEO of this larger sort of umbrella organization that includes not only Voice of America, but Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia, uh, put in a guy, a very conservative um, filmmaker who is an ally of uh, the dreaded Steve Bannon and uh, put him in as CEO. And since that has happened, um, great havoc has ensued. Well, let's talk about some of that havoc. This includes even this guy. Um, I don't know if he said his name. Uh, Michael Pack. Michael, Michael yeah. Pack. Yeah, Michael Pack. Um, he's refused to renew expiring visas of uh, foreign journalists. Um, maybe mention some of the other stuff that he's done that you right. find alarming. So in, in a number of cases, he has gotten rid of the career journalists who, you know, have very good reputations for impartiality and for straight shooting and all of that, um, gotten rid of them, either fired them or, or seriously demoted them and put in um, people who would reflect the pro-Trump point of view, all, you know, in the, uh, it, it says his intention is to drain the swamp and root out corruption and there's terrible bias. But in fact, it seems more like he wants to promote a certain agenda. I mean, the other thing that's happened under Michael Pack is that the, the VOA's, the Voice of America's White House correspondent, Steve Herman, who has a good reputation, again, as a straight shooter and has been there for quite a while, um, they put him under investigation or they started an investigation against him for his supposed anti-Trump uh, bias, of which they're to my knowledge, there is no evidence. So that's the kind of thing they're doing. It's kind of a culture of intimidation and it's an effort to politicize an organization that actually has in its charter language that says, nope, that, you know, you can't do it. This can, this can't be about a particular party. It can't be about promoting a particular uh, point of view. And to, you know, an example of how it hasn't been politicized is that, you know, just one example is that during the Clinton administration, VOA covered the, the impeachment hearings. Now, would that, you know, would that make President Clinton particularly happy? No, but because of these guardrails and this sort of um, firewall, as you put it, that was allowed to happen. It was just sort of the norm. This is what's going on in the United States. We're going to report it to the world. I mean, it's similar 
uh, to what we usually experience and hope to experience when we work for newspapers or other kind of commercial entities. We're usually told that there is a firewall between the business side uh, and, and the editorial side, that reporters will not be told what they can report about car dealerships uh, just because the car dealerships advertise in the paper and they don't like it, uh, that there, there is right. that firewall. We're sometimes even told there's a firewall between the reporting staff and the editorial page, uh, that there's the notion that the reporting staff doesn't have any ability to, in, to influence the, the the writing of editorials and, and vice versa. There, these kinds of firewalls are common, and you kind of hope that they hold together, and you're sad when they don't. I guess That's I right. wonder, is there any way to, I mean, let, let's pretend that I'm a much more conservative person than I actually am, and I say to you, well, Margaret, if, if in fact a reporter for Voice of America is anti-Trump and is depicting President Trump uh, to the rest of the world in, uh, in, in a manner that's tilted in an unflattering direction, isn't that kind of a problem? Maybe not the same problem as President Trump being able to control Voice of America as a voice of his state and his government and his, his administration, but isn't it some kind of problem? Sure. And I think that if that were to come about and, you know, there are nearly 4000 employees of this larger agency that includes Voice of America. When you have 4000 people, many of whom are journalists and then another 1500 stringer journalists who are basically freelancers, believe me, you're going to have some problems. I mean, I managed a newsroom in Buffalo of 200 people and you had all kinds of issues that came up and personnel problems and plagiarism issues. And, you know, things happen in newsrooms and things happen in media organizations, but they need to be dealt with not politically, but rather editorially. And so one of the unfortunate things that's happened is that just before Michael Pack came on, knowing that he was going to come on, the um, the director of Voice of America, Amanda Bennett, a very well-respected journalist who'd been at the Wall Street Journal and had been the top editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer and had been at Bloomberg News, she and her top assistant stepped down because the writing was on the wall, that they couldn't go on uh, being the journalists that they wanted to be under this new regime. And so there was an interim um, director put in, and now that person has been replaced each time, um, well, certainly this most recent time, with someone who is clearly very political and clearly very much in the pro-Trump mode. So yes, to answer your question, of course things happen, and of course you have to sometimes do disciplinary kinds of things or deal with issues, but they should be done um, in a way that's not about politics. One thing that we haven't mentioned that I just want to mention because it's uh, there so clearly in your article, I think it's both Amanda Bennett, Bennett and Sanford Unger, who worked there for a long time, saying the same thing, which is that, you know, when you go to other countries and you're working for Voice of America and people even see the what we call in the business, the mic flag, the little thing on a microphone that has the insignia or logo, uh, in this case, of Voice of America, people brighten. I mean, it really has this kind of gold standard quality to people. Oh, you are the people who come and tell me the truth and they, you can't be shut down by the government of whatever country we're talking about. And that's been, you know, such an incredible source of pride, I think. Uh, that's and, right. Uh, for so that's long. right. And that's something that, you know, I've certainly heard from from the two different directors of the Voice of America over the years that when they went to obscure villages and, you know, tiny places all over the world that, you know, villagers and, and people who, you know, just had encountered it as 
as radio coverage would come up to them and thank them and treat them almost like a rock star because they were so appreciative. And in all of these cases or many of these cases, this was because it was being broadcast in their own language or their own dialect. And that of course is what part of what made it so incredibly makes it so incredibly valuable. And I guess I do want to say that this work continues to this day and, and people inside Voice of America told me as I was reporting this column that, you know, we're basically intact here. We're, yes, we're threatened and some bad stuff is happening, but we can recover from this. And we, we hope to be able to soon if Michael Pack is sent, I guess we could say packing. Um, so, you know, pr- President-elect Biden has already indicated that he's going to replace Michael Pack. And he has assigned a former Time Magazine managing editor, Richard Stengel, to sort of keep an eye on what's happening. And he is a likely person to to do that job. So there are some some signs that it would return to a bit more equilibrium. But I think a lot of harm has been done. And it's not not always easy if a wrecking ball comes in to put the pieces back together. Right. And we should say more than we've even had time to document. I mean, PAC has tried to fire numerous senior leaders. He's disbanded oversight boards. He's demoted the interim uh, director and replaced him with a guy who's famous for, among other things, his really, frankly, homophobic uh, writings. So we've only got a, a minute and change left here. But I just want to go back to what you were just saying. I mean, you know, people expect Joe Biden to step in with a magic wand and fix all of this stuff, like not just Voice of America, but there are, you know, 20 parallel stories to this. And one does wonder how much he can do and in how short a window. That's right. I mean, you know, Biden, for one thing, has a rather large public health and economic problem to deal with. And and those undoubtedly will be top of mind. But he also has a lot of help. And if he's already indicated that he wants to do something to fix this, I think that's a good sign. And it's it's a hopeful one. But I do worry that so much, you know, there's still quite a bit of time between now and Inauguration Day. And what is the Michael Pax endgame? We don't really know. He was still doing things last week that were pretty pretty tough to see. So there's a lot of time to do do harm, I think. All right, Margaret Sullivan, we got to go. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Media columnist for The Washington Post, the author of Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. Um, we once again are going to have Patrick, uh, the Alexander Hamilton uh, of uh, the Colin McEnroe show and Harriet Jones, who once hosted uh, our Scottish secession show. Uh, <laughs> and they're going to tell you why you should support the station and our show. Please make a pledge during our show. It really helps us out a lot. I mean, assuming you want to help us out. If you don't want to help us out, you probably should not pledge now. Or you should pledge and say, but not for this rubbish or something like that. I don't know. I can't look inside your heart. 1-800-848-9222. Or WNPR.org. Those are two ways that you can either call or go online and show your support of the Colin McEnroe Show. We are in our very short December pledge drive, and we would so much appreciate if you can step up and show us some love at the end of this uh, crazy 2020. I'm Harriet Jones. I'm here with Patrick Scahill. We're all clinging on by our fingernails here. We're getting through 2020. <laughs> um, 
And we're so grateful to you, to our listeners, to everyone who's supported us all the way through this year. We've made it through. Um, you know, we're almost into the new year, into 2021. We'll see what that will bring. Uh, hopefully better things. But um, again, we so much appreciate your support. And we would so much appreciate if you can, you know, help us through to the end of this year. If you can, one 800 584 renew your membership or take out a new membership. If you've never been a member of the station, it's a great feeling when you do it. 1-800-584-2788 or online at wnpr.org. We are thankful for each and every one of you that's been our companion uh, through this chaotic year. And, you know, we hope that we've been there for you, uh, not only to inform you, uh, but to entertain you uh, during this year. And I think uh, Colin's show is really emblematic of uh, how Connecticut Public can can strike a really unique and special balance between those two things. Uh, Every single day here during the week, Colin and his team are bringing you unique, creative, fun ideas Um, But they're also bringing you important news stories and they're bringing you important voices that you wouldn't hear elsewhere on the radio dial or uh, in in your podcast stream. So if you value that, again, we do need your pledge of support to ensure that this program stays strong. And not only this program, uh, but all the other great programs that you enjoy on Connecticut Public programs like Where We Live and Morning Edition and All Things Considered. All of those shows continue to function, continue to bring you all the chaotic, crazy news that you're uh, getting this year uh, because you make it happen. And it's important news. It's important stuff that needs to continue. So 1-800-584-2788. That's the number or WNPR.org. Harriet? You know, this is a, a metaphor I pull out every pledge drive, but I do it unashamedly because it really, really true. This is like the honesty box for WNPR, for Connecticut Public Radio. You know, you listen, you listen every day, you enjoy it. There's no way that you you wouldn't step up and support that, right? You wouldn't just take it and not actually drop your money into the honesty box. So the pledge drive is our honesty box. So if you've enjoyed this radio this year, if you've enjoyed Colin's show, we'd so much appreciate if you'd show that with a dollar amount, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. Take this chance to drop your dollars into the honesty box or online at wnpr.org. Thank you so much for your support of Colin McEnroe and of Connecticut Public Radio. When the voice of a man-